always a foundation to have that's good in sports. You know, it's not always a difference maker, you know, because there's some people with commitment and desire and, and dedication that can be successful as well. But that team was extremely gifted as far as talent was concerned in, in some key places. First and foremost, as you mentioned, you know, I don't think there is a good team without a good goalie. And Paul Schmoller was a, I mean, he wasn't a good goalie. He was a phenomenal goalie, probably one of the best of all time. In 87, he was only a sophomore. Seeing his talent was stunning. By the same token, Tim Goldstein was equally a groundbreaking player. You know, I akin him to a Magic Johnson type player, where there is probably not a better player in history who could pass the ball to you with the precision and the timing that he could. This is the Fred Opie Show, where we share lacrosse stories and life lessons from coaches, players, parents, and experts. I'm your host, Fred Opie, a former Syracuse University and U.S. national team player. Today on the Fred Opie Show, Cornell University All-American defenseman Aaron Jones, another product of Hempstead High School. Aaron Jones is the CEO of Metro Lacrosse, an organization located in Boston, Massachusetts that uses lacrosse to teach life skills to its residents. We talk about his college visits as a high school senior and the adjustments he had to make going from a predominantly African-American high school at Hempstead to Cornell University. We go back in time and reflect on the 1987 Cornell University lacrosse team, which went into the NCAA championship game as a undefeated team. Previous to that, the Big Red was a 500 team. I asked him what happened to turn around that team and how does he explain his success? He played with a number of fantastic players at Cornell who I asked about, including Hall of Famer Timmy Goldstein, two-time U.S. national team goalie Paul Schmoller, as well as Jay Gallagher, who was the defensive coordinator at Cornell University during Aaron's tenure there, but succumbed at a young age to cancer. He talks about Richie Moran and what made him such a great coach and more, all today on the Fred Opie Show. Why did you choose Cornell? You are one of uh, many two-sport athletes. So why Cornell and why just lacrosse? That actually is a uh, comical story of uh, parental wisdom. Recruited to play a number of sports and uh, was fortunate enough to be accepted at uh, University of Maryland and University of North Carolina uh, to play football. Uh, and was anxious to go to either one of them. And my mother, upon returning home from one of my numerous recruiting trips during my senior year, had laid out acceptance letters on my kitchen table. Princeton, Brown, Johns Hopkins, and Cornell. And she said, uh, these are the schools that you're going to, you're going to choose from. I chose Cornell sight unseen under obligation to listen to my mother, conditioned to understand that whatever she said was the rule. I, I followed her instructions. Aaron's mom was a high school teacher at the school where he, he went, and she was loved, feared, and revered. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a very accurate and kind description of her. her 
you know, that always that comparison between famous or infamous, and my mom was probably a combination of the two. So when you went to Cornell, did you uh, try football as well? I played football my freshman year at Cornell. The football team was rebuilding at that time. It was enough for me to concentrate on one sport. Transitioning from Hempstead to an atmosphere like Cornell was very overwhelming uh, in an environment where I was uh, a one of only a very few persons of color on the entire campus. And Cornell is, unlike most Ivy League institutions, Cornell is a big school. It's over 20,000 students. And of course, um, on the lacrosse team, the only one. It definitely was culture shock for me. And, and uh, also, it was culture shock for my teammates. Because I was a very arrogant, outspoken. I had these lofty ideals of who I was or what I was as an athlete or a player. And uh, I'm sure I was culture shock for my teammates at the time who probably had never been in that close proximity with an African-American, just like I hadn't been in any close proximity with any majority persons that, at that time in my life. So at Cornell, you decided to major in what? Uh, my major at Cornell was industrial and labor relations, the study of union and management relationships historically and progressively. How did you come about making that choice? A very famous mediator from the National Labor Relations Board was an alumnus of Hempstead High. Starting in my junior year, he came back to introduce a labor relations class to the curriculum at Hempstead High, and I took that class and became extremely in interested in the business uh, platform that labor relations introduced me to. And it, it became a natural extension to then apply for the School of Labor Relations at Cornell. He was the person who introduced it to me. Hezekiah Brown is a very renowned negotiator, profound in introducing me to the, in to the industry. What was your graduating GPA? I graduated with like a 3.8. Man, and my little pitiful 2.3? Good gracious alive. A 3.8, that's awesome. Well, truth be told, my first semester at Cornell, because of this adjustment that we're talking about, I got a 1.8 on uh, academic probation. You know, one of the things about Hempstead that was profound at that time was, you know, we had a series of great athletes that went on to college, but a good number of them would come back home after their freshman year because they couldn't withstand the academic pressure. And then they would be relegated to working for parks and rec or sanitation. And not to, not to insult anybody in that career, but I definitely had more aspirations for myself. So I was uh, frightened with that reality and that made me buckle down and just ignore the culture shock and, and tend to my books. Okay, but unpack how you go from a 1.8 your freshman year to a 3.8. That's like going from being uh, found from bankruptcy to being a millionaire. First, it was about ignoring the environment. You know, I was just a little intimidated by the fact that I was one of very few African-Americans on campus and I let it, I sort of had a deer in headlights kind of uh, reaction to it. Intimidated me to the degree that I wasn't really concentrating on my work. I had to start concentrating on it. And secondly, I sought, actively sought tutorial help. There are different resources throughout the college gave me access to tutorial help, which uh, then uh, birthed a real system of time management. The other big challenge for me 
for the first time in my life was to be on a college campus where no one was monitoring my time. So I had to develop a system of dedication to my work, similar to the way, you know, my athletic schedule was laid out to me. And I, I learned a system of time management, when to eat, when to study, when to practice, uh, when to work out. All those things became a regimen and a routine, and that system helped me build a better academic record. Getting that 1.8 had to bring on a sense of shame. Did you work out of that? Very, very uh, embarrassing, because I had always performed well academically, and I came home, and my parents were honest with me. If you don't take advantage of this opportunity, you will come home, and you will get a job. We will not be uh, visiting college anymore. So if you're telling us you're not capable, then we'll just put you to work. And that entire concept scared me straight. I didn't want, I didn't want to, uh, again, my father was a carpenter. I respected him immensely, but I saw myself uh, doing something more white collar. And I wanted to materialize and be that first person in my family to take on a white collar profession. So I was motivated to, to turn around. You know, Aaron, I have a, a new book coming out, and it's called uh, Start with the Gift. And it's a recipe for finding a vocation that feels like a vacation. And one of the points I make in the book is that we, we praise, we honor, we privilege going to college, becoming a white-collar worker at the expense of shaming, dishonoring, undermining the trades like carpentry like your dad did uh you know you grew up watching somebody be in the trades i would imagine like i did you grew up working sometimes with your dad and now you had this opportunity to go to college what is your position do you believe that everybody should go to college i absolutely believe that only a small percentage of people are made for college uh, and, and I don't even think the opportunity is is a is a fortuitous one for a lot of people that even do go to college. College is not a recipe for success for a lot of people. Uh, I have immense respect for the trades and believe those are skill sets that are highly marketable, highly transferable, and highly compensated for. So I am a stern advocate for going into the trades. And you're right. I worked with my father every summer throughout college. So I have eminent respect for the trade of carpentry and all other trades and, and believe they could provide the platform for the American dream for the underclass. It is Those skill sets are highly accessible and amenable to any economy around the globe. You know, I know a number of guys that um, I played with at the club level at, for Long Island Cross Club, and these were folks who went to college, played four years of lacrosse. I don't know if they all graduated from the institutions where they played lacrosse for four years, and then they went on into different trades, some carpentry, some uh, civil service jobs like the post office or a number of very honorable professions. But in retrospect, I wonder how many of them went to college really just to play lacrosse. And when lacrosse was over, it was do something else because the degree program they were in 
didn't seem to have an interest in them, and they didn't pursue it afterwards. So they spent four years getting a degree, probably coming out with, with, with student loan debt, played lacrosse, enjoyed it, continued to play club, but never went back anywhere near the professions. I just got an email from a friend yesterday who said, hey, I Googled Long Island Sachems and saw you playing a game and back in 1988. So if you remember, that was a early outdoor uh, traditional lacrosse attempt at a professional league. So I Googled it and saw it on YouTube. And as I look at the tape of my team back in 1988, I saw a number of teammates who did exactly what you're talking about. One gentleman was a police officer. Another gentleman uh, was a labor unionist. Another gentleman was in the postal service. And I know those three gentlemen. The, the policeman, in fact, became a real estate mogul as a, res as a result of his work in the police department. Started buying houses in Long Island and now owns multifamily units in a number of communities throughout Long Island as a retired police officer and highly uh, successful uh, financially. We are one of the few developed countries I know of in the world where people go to college and play sports. And I, I would question whether the selection of a school has anything to do with developing a skill, a love, a passion, a gift to then monetize that later as they provide service to other people. It seems to me that people are choosing a place to go play lacrosse for four years and accumulating student loan debt in the process of continuing the lacrosse career. I would be interested to find out what percentage of student athletes have an idea of what career interests they have and if their field of study at their respective schools match that, field, that interest. I wanted to go to other schools. My mother forced me to go to Cornell have to expose young folk, adolescents, to different occupations, whether they be white collar or blue collar, but expose them to it. And then they can make a better informed decision about whether they should even consider this as a career opportunity. You are, I mean, you're one of the rare people I've talked to in, in doing these interviews who had a sense of what they want to do, and what they want to major because of the pre-existing exposure you had to it you know, take a kid to work day. Those things are super important. I know with mental lacrosse, as a former board member, that we have a program where we try to get the members of the uh, the participants to then, you know, shadow a professional at whatever area. I, th I think that needs to happen, but I also think it needs to happen with the trades that take your kid to work if you're in a particular profession to see what they do. And, it, you know, not just when they're you know, 18, 19 home from school like me and you were, and we're working with our parents, but when they're younger, expose them to the field. Let them see what people are doing, whether it's white collar or blue collar. Well, I couldn't agree more. Uh, one, I think exposure to career opportunities is something, especially in the underclass or lower middle class or middle class neighborhoods is very important because you want the kids to be aspirational and maybe learn or uh, understand that there are opportunities beyond the environments that they're used to. And uh, exposure is, is a beginning point to them feeling uh, like getting an understanding of what's available out here. And then I also think that our economy is growing to the point where you need skill sets that are transferable uh, on an entrepreneurial level. So you can gain these kind of trade skills that can later turn out to be the basis of you as an individual starting your own business. Lacrosse alumni 
have created a network by which before you graduate from Cornell, you can get exposed to all kinds of great jobs and opportunity, as you mentioned, in Wall Street. Can you tell me your understanding of what Cornell players who are currently enrolled have historically done uh, during the summertime? At Cornell, and, and, and honestly, at a number of lacrosse institutions, I, I've seen it uh, more powerfully with lacrosse than I have with other sports, but I am closer to the sport of lacrosse. But lacrosse and Cornell being a great example, the alumni pool uh, of lacrosse players are uh, dogmatic about connecting current or current students or recent graduates to their respective industries by pro- affording them internship opportunities. All of my friends and I uh, enjoyed the opportunity to sit with alumni at their respective jobs and coaches at the time implored us to engage alumni during our uh, periods at Cornell to understand what opportunities could be afforded us. And it was the time of the crash of the 80s, pretty dark time on Wall Street in particular, but still uh, alumni were highly interested in affording opportunities for us. And it's led to a, a quite a number of people that are successful to this day because of the things they were exposed and introduced to while we were there. And I have in my office today a picture of my high school team and a picture of my college team side by side. And as I go through the graduates from those respective institutions, the careers and the upward mobility of the Cornell picture, of course, is drastically different than the Hempstead picture. But by and large, I accredit that to exposure and to opportunities that were provided, not talent, not intelligence, not capability, just exposure. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend, share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopi.com. If you're enjoying this interview with Hempstead High School graduate Aaron Jones, check out the interview that we've done with Dan Williams, another Hempstead alum who went on to play collegiate lacrosse at West Point Military Academy, and an interview with Reggie Terry, who played high school lacrosse at Hempstead before going on to play football at Syracuse University. Here's a clip. First, Dan Williams. You can't put yourself in debt. You know, you don't go off and put in keep pulling second and third mortgages on your home to try and fund Donnie's education because that's not going to do you any good later on life. You're going to be working until you're 80, 90 years old, and it, it doesn't do anyone any good. You do have to look at the financial side of it, talking to the coach, talking to school from a, from a you know, if they, if they have a scholarship, you, you, you try and negotiate it a little bit more from a scholarship standpoint, but your financial aid. But here's what you're going to be left with Student loans, you need to understand it's hard to pay those back. Here's a clip from the interview with Reggie Terry. 
he, he was always talented, but then he said, well, listen, maybe I need to, to lift weights a little bit. Well, maybe, Branch, what are you guys doing in Syracuse? So whenever I was home, we worked out together. My brother was a lacrosse goalie with uh, Mr. Hodish and those teams. On his games on Sunday afternoons, I would take him out and I would warm him up. I said, Reg, man, you used to try to kill me. I said, no, man, I was just trying to get you ready to play. But he would say those experiences really helped. I want to earn a scholarship. I want to play. Okay, be careful. Because if you say those things, then I'm going to try to hold you accountable to what the expectation is. You can listen to these interviews and others like them at our podcast archive. Go to fredopi.com and look for the link for our podcast. Now, back to the interview with Aaron Jones. The coach, uh, Richie Moran, who's in the uh, Lacrosse Hall of Fame. What do you think made him successful as a coach? I, I definitely think human spirit was his biggest attribute. He connected with you as a person. I mean, I've never seen a man more incredibly able to remember things about who you are, things about your family aspects that really make you the person that you are. So Coach was incredible at connecting in that level. I know the other thing, uh, something that we exposed him to was giving people the power to be who they are. We had a lot of talent on our team that grew from, you know, being freshmen to upperclassmen. It called for us to play a style that wasn't traditional for him. And, but to his credit, he recognized the talent and allowed us to be who we are. Jay Gallagher and his legacy. He was Tom Selleck's twin, first and foremost, so he was quite the imposing figure, the nicest and most compassionate man that I've you know, experienced at that point in my life. Uh, had an incredible sense of belief in your ability. He would, he would remind you of what you were capable of all the time. Be very instructional in how, how to help you get and maximize your capabilities. So he was the glue that, that held me together during my uh, adjustment to Cornell my freshman and sophomore year. He was an amazing leader and mentor for me, formidable in his knowledge of the game and his ability to teach it. He grew up in Garden Cities. Be aware that Garden City and Hempstead were probably as, as opposites on the spectrum as they could op opposite as they could be. Garden City being a you know a white affluent suburban community, and Hempstead being exactly the opposite in every way, shape, and form. But he never made me feel like we were from opposite backgrounds. He would always remind us that we come from the same place, we're of the same stock, and we can we're going to achieve greatness together. And uh, I I always appreciated him for that. Him and his entire family, in fact, did that for me. Was Jay a Cornell grad? Yes, he was. I went into the office to talk to Coach Desco, had a, just a chat with him right after practice, and, and essentially just in, in frustration said, what do I have to do to play? He said, square up, get on the guy's gloves, and you need to start hustling. I worked on what he said, and then throughout the offseason when I was back home playing you know, summer leagues, I worked on that. What was something that Jay told you? You know, I, I think it happened in an opposite way for me. Because I was a freshman, the defense were all upperclassmen at that time. And Jay did the opposite. Jay started me at the early portion of my freshman year. From his encouragement that I had greatness inside of me and I could be a formidable player at that school and at Division One, 
when he started me, it instilled an incredible level of, of confidence and confirmation in my mind that I could do it and that uh, it was up to me to to honor the opportunity that he gave me. Started for the first half of the year and then the second half of the year they moved me to Longstick Midi because I was hustling and, you know, I was faster than uh, pretty good on ground balls, tenacious on defense and and, you know, at the time, the game was making that conversion to a lot of threats being from the midfield. So I took it that way, as an, took it as an opportunity, but I wanted to get back to starting as one of the down-low defensemen. Credit to him with, with giving me that opportunity mm. to start. I always knew it was going to be possible. So other than that second half of my freshman year, where I, too, was depressed because we were not, we did not have a good season. We were not playing well and had a horrible season. And I was very depressed. But I said to myself, I was going to come back and I was going to start and I was going to be an impact player. But Jay instilled the belief that that was possible for me. Played on the 87 team that went undefeated into the national championship? Yes. And you talk about a turnaround. I played against you for two years and then I'm playing for Long Island Lacrosse Club. And that team that I played on in Long Island had nine, maybe ten Repeating U.S. team members, close to nine of that team is in the National Hall of Fame. And you all came down and scrimmaged us at the beginning of the 80, 87 season. And, oh, we were shocked. It was almost as though Coach Moran had pulled an 18-wheeler up to the field, backed it up, and let out a Tesla for the first time that nobody had ever seen a Tesla. The team was phenomenal. There's Timmy Goldstein, probably one of the most interesting transitions I saw. is Todd Francis, who scored, I think, two goals in that scrimmage against us. He was an amazing athlete. I mean, amazing just, athlete. He, he, was, he was scary to play against. He was amazing. <laughs> but then you have Take Paul Smolder, phenomenal player, played with me on the U.S. national team. His brother John played with me at Syracuse. Give the listeners a sense of how that team came together and what happened. Talent is always a foundation to have that's good in sports. You know, it's not always a difference maker, you know, because there's some people with commitment and desire and, and dedication that can be successful as well. But that team was extremely gifted as far as talent was concerned in, in some key places. First and foremost, as you mentioned, you know, I don't think there is a good team without a good goalie. And Paul Schmoller was a, I mean, he wasn't a good goalie. He was a phenomenal goalie, probably one of the best of all times. I mean, that kid was absolutely amazing and that remember at that time in 87 he was only a sophomore so uh he was just stunning his talent was stunning uh and uh by the same token tim goldstein was equally a uh groundbreaking player at that time incredibly quick uh, you know i akin him to a magic johnson type player where he may not do a lot of goal scoring himself as a lot of the great players have throughout history but there is probably not a better player in history who could pass the ball to you with the precision and the timing that he could and then we had an obscure talent in a little guy named john worsberger who was probably five three five four but one of those uncannily gifted uh crease attackmen who could catch a ball anywhere you put it near him and put it on the cage and then just like with every other team we had a cadre of people who played their roles just as they were called to play them and did their jobs phenomenally well. So all of those players were equally talented as well. It, it came together like a puzzle. 
the talent of that team started on defense with Paul, and then we had a good nucleus of defensemen that were equally talented and well-versed to stop anything that an opponent could offer. Our midfielders were extremely talented, but our, you know, our success was in our speed, our athletic ability, and our uh, capability to move the ball very fast from one end of the uh, one end of the field to the other, and and put it in the goal before you blink your eye. What did you learn about confidence from that four-year experience of playing on it for two years of essentially, or three years, kind of mediocre teams, teams that had talents but did not did not perform to their ability. And then this last year where everything came together, what did you learn, particularly among those of you who were seniors who didn't enjoy right. success, and all of a sudden, were there situations where now we believe we can? I tell kids all the time that confidence is, is akin to faith to me. It's belief in things that sometimes are unseen that you have to have an internal light or an internal vision. Uh, and confidence is not uh, a byproduct of microwavable or fast or instant results. It's a belief in something that may take time for it to materialize. So to your point, you know, my class came in as freshmen and the team throughout our freshman and sophomore year did not do well. And junior year, we were sort of turning it around, but it was at a point during our junior year where we realized that we were a talented team and we were getting there. We were we were on the precipice of something that was formidable. So by the end of that junior year, we knew that we had uh, sort of turned the tide. And, and the belief in ourselves, even when the results didn't particularly say so, the belief that we could be formidable had been, that foundation has been had been laid. So we came in, uh, worked very hard to be uh, in shape and prepared for that senior season, and we had a chip on our shoulders to prove to prove to ourselves that we could be uh, formidable and we could bring back the history and the lore of what Cornell lacrosse meant to uh, the lacrosse world at that time. And and fortunately, we had the talent to back it up. Was it a game? Was it a quarter? Tell me, when do you think that happened? You know, I think it happened somewhere like at the midpoint of our junior year. It was actually in practice where, you know, people like Tim Goldstein uh, was practicing at that point because he was a transfer and he couldn't play during my junior year. But he was he couldn't he could practice sometimes. We were out at practice and we we had a lot of seniors on the team at that time and, and the underclassmen were just phenomenally taking over the aspects of practice and it just it just galvanized us as a group to see what we were capable of and we were in a position to uh, take over and have our our mark on history be made. So I think it happened midway through the year at practice. You know, I find that phenomenal because most people would have expected you to say it was at in this quarter against this team instead of people realizing that games are won during practice. How you practice and the way you practice has more to do with your success on game day than probably anything else. I, I couldn't agree more. Everything is made won and lost in practice in your preparation, and that has been successful for me as a principal throughout life. It's about preparation. Preparation makes execution possible. There's often times... Once I'm in the classroom and I see the students I'm working with, I got to pivot. I got to do an audible, a rate 
in the situation and realize, wait, the rest of this semester, I need to change my focus. I've come here and understood that I needed to pivot the entire organization to have a focus on long-term stability and scale. Or I didn't come here thinking that I had to figure out a way to build the organization for long-term success uh, or long-term sustainability. And uh, quickly that became, it became a realization that had, that had to be my, my entire focus on this job. This is my first effort in the nonprofit industry. So it's, it's been a lot of things that I've had to learn about that whole um, prospect of, of, of running a nonprofit organization and how it's funded and how it exists from year to year. If someone pledged $1 million per year for five years to Metro Lacrosse, what would you do with that money? We are in the middle of a capital campaign. We're about to build a building that will give us a, a stable place to run our operations out of that's in the heart of the community that we serve. Because right now we exist as a nomadic organization, and in that I mean that we rent a series of fields from the city all over the city and kids participate in any one area, but they seem isolated. And the city at large does not know that we are the largest urban lacrosse program in the United States. So building this home will give us a chance to uh, always have a place where people can know where we are and know where we exist and even come by and experience what we do. So if someone gave me that million dollars for five years, I would put it into this building. And not only would I put it into the building, but I would then invest in the long-term success of our programming and provide an extended opportunity for people to come by and participate in what we do because what we do is offered free to any person who is within the city and uh, all the kids that we service around the country. We've never charged them any for anything that we do. That money that you suggest would be set up as an endowment to continually fund the operation of our program for years to come. I wanted you to talk uh, in closing to a college sophomore, junior uh, person about to go into their senior year, possibly male or female, loves the game of lacrosse, uh, loves the ideal of continuing to work in lacrosse. What opportunities could Metrolaws provide like that in terms of a career? You know, I think that's one of the most optimistic things about what we do and what I've, uh, you know, realized here is that we are a fully functioning sports management organization. Uh, anybody in any field of study who has a passion for lacrosse or an interest in being in business or in sports can find a career here. We have uh, marketing because we develop, we have a, a series of corporate partnerships and we're developing more. We have uh, uh, business and finance because that's uh, instrumental to, to our success even as a nonprofit organization. We have the whole nonprofit aspect of grant management and donor-based management, access to grant writing and the process of receiving and, and understanding the grant industry. Uh, and then we also have those things that are more uh, close to the sport, coaching, uh, human resources, managing uh, adults as well as managing kids uh, and teaching kids the sport. So 
this this organization covers the gamut of careers that are available even in for-profit industries. What I am proud to say is over 50% of my staff are alumni from the program who did exactly as your question laid out, played in the program, were afforded an opportunity to go to college, play the sport or participate in the sport. And then because of the impact that the organization had on them, they came back to now work for the organization. So I'm extremely proud that over half of my staff are Metro Lacrosse alumni. How have your eating habits changed since your freshman year in college? Freshman year particularly, oh, fast food was a, was a lifeline for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even eat that anymore. So uh, it, was a, it was actually... That's what I considered a good meal, a trip to McDonald's or Burger King. <laughs> now I eat healthy food. I, uh, I lean on proteins and lean meat. I manage my carbs. and I am a totally converted health-conscious individual at this point in my life. Out to dinner, my daughter plays AAU basketball. Out to dinner with the team, uh, the parents on the team, and someone was chastising me for what they said. My dinner was like a lean cuisine meal because I had uh, grilled chicken with grilled vegetables. And they were like, well, everyone out at the table was eating all sorts of uh, stuff that I, I just don't eat. One woman who was enthralled with what I was eating, she said, you only live once. You should eat better than that. I said, well, that's, that's actually the principle that I live by, that you only live once and I should eat better. So you mentioned the website for Metro Lacrosse. Can you share it one more time and any other sure. ways people can learn about you and your work? Sure. Please visit www.metrolacrosse.com to learn about our organization and how you may be able to commit to our success by maybe making a donation or volunteering your time or volunteering the time of your family or your community. Maybe being invited to play a game or have a friendly competition could it could go a long way to helping us as well. Thanks again for listening to the show. I love giving talks on the topic of school and sports. For more information, email the show at fdopie at gmail.com. Once again, that's fdopie at gmail.com. You can also contact us if you're interested in advertising on the show. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend, share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopi.com. Thanks for listening, and be good. Be good.